Hello, I'm Elaine Moore. This is Tectonic, and this season is about social media. So I'm starting it here, in San Francisco, with the story of the world's richest man and one of the best-known social media platforms in the world. I'm standing on the corner of Market and 10th Street in San Francisco, headquarters to Twitter, one of the city's most famous companies. Above me is a huge sign with Twitter's name and its Bluebird logo. San Francisco is a beautiful city and it's a lovely morning, but this is not the best part of town. Twitter's move was supposed to kickstart a regeneration of this area, and I would say that that has had mixed success. You can buy some very expensive lunches around here, but a lot of the shops have been barred shut. There are strange stains all over the road. And like a lot of San Francisco, it smells very strongly of weed. The road is busy, but the street is fairly quiet. I've seen more people going into the gym behind Twitter's headquarters than I have seen people walking into the offices. And that's probably because over the last few months, Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, has fired most of his workforce. Last October, Musk tweeted a video of himself walking into the lobby here, carrying a heavy sink and wrote, entering Twitter HQ, let that sink in. Here was the richest man in the world, the boss of electric car company Tesla and rocket company SpaceX. He just bought Twitter for $44 billion and he couldn't resist turning it into a joke. Musk has always pitched his takeover of Twitter as a way to help all of humanity, saying it's important to civilization that we have somewhere online that we can debate different ideas in a healthy way. But his attempts at reforming the company have been chaotic. As much as he's obsessed with using the platform, he also seems in some way to despise the company that he bought. The finances are precarious, most of the workforce is gone. Musk himself has warned that the company could go bankrupt. So the question now is whether Twitter one of the companies that helped to launch the era of social media will survive. This is Tectonic from the Financial Times. I'm Elaine Moore, deputy editor of the FT's Lex column based here in San Francisco. And in this season of the podcast, we're asking, is the golden era of social media coming to an end? Most of us have a social media account, whether it's Facebook or Snapchat, TikTok or WeChat. It's a global multi-billion dollar industry. But there are signs of trouble. User growth at some of the biggest companies is slowing down. Privacy changes are making it harder to make money. Data scandals and disinformation mean platforms have lost some of the trust of their users. Content has changed. Younger users call Instagram cringeworthy and say Facebook's for boomers. And TikTok has been threatened with bans, while new apps like Clubhouse fall out of fashion as quickly as they arrive. And then there's Twitter. When Musk took over, his supporters hoped the billionaire entrepreneur might revive the company. Co-founder Jack Dorsey even called him the singular solution I trust. But his critics say he's ruining the platform and putting the financial future of the entire company in jeopardy. So, is Musk the future of social media? Or is he one more contributor to what's being called social media's flop era? It might seem strange that a company so well-known, one that counts presidents and celebrities amongst its user base, is in financial difficulty. 
But those who were there at the start say dysfunction was baked into Twitter from the beginning. Evan, would you introduce yourself? And do you want me to call you Evan or how would you like to be referred to? Oh, I generally go by Rabble. Okay. Um, But, you know, I I don't object when people call me Evan either. Rabble, will you introduce yourself? Sure. So... uh, I'm Ravel. I'm a, a hackware, hacker and a, an entrepreneur and activist, and I've been involved in the creation and evolution of social media and social media platforms for the last 20 years. Evan Henshaw Plath, who also goes by Rabble, is a self-described anarchist, hacker and troublemaker who played a key role in social media history. Back in 2006, he was part of a team building a podcast startup in San Francisco called Odeo. When Apple launched its own podcast platform, Odeo's creators began to look for new ideas. We did these hackathons where we said, "Okay, let's take these ideas about how we could build some kind of new social software, new social networking tool that looks at the emerging of smartphones. The idea that took off was a platform where you could text short messages for all your friends to see. And we initially didn't have a name for it, and people joked about the names. And so one person called it Friendstalker because it was sort of a way of keeping up to date with what your friends were doing. And then eventually Noah Glass, one of the guys on the team, picked up a giant, thick Oxford English dictionary and started at A looking through the dictionary until he got to T and he found that Twitter was a word in the English language, sort of communication between birds or sort of things you throw out there in the world that are very short. And so it became obvious that Twitter was the right name for it and it stuck. Odeo engineer Jack Dorsey became Twitter's new CEO and the platform was quickly popular. Suddenly, people could chat directly to celebrities, business leaders and politicians. They could go viral with just a hashtag. But Rabble says the company was never very good at making money. Like, we were a venture capital-backed startup, and the goal was to make money. But I don't think we really knew how we would make money. The assumption was that at some point down the road, there would be a solution to the business model problem. There would be a way to make money on this. What happened was it just kept growing and growing and growing, and more people used it, and there was no clear, easy business model except advertising. And I think Twitter always felt embarrassed by advertising. And because of that, Twitter never succeeded in making itself a good enough business. And that's Twitter's fault. Unlike its one-time rival Facebook, Twitter has never managed to turn its popular platform into a large, profitable advertising business. In fact, at the time Musk took over, Twitter had only made an annual profit twice in the last decade. So when Musk first disclosed his stake in Twitter early last year, he had plenty of cheerleaders. Here was a successful businessman, one who could turn around an inefficient and loss-making company. And he was a fan of Twitter, one of the world's most prolific tweeters, with ideas on how to improve the platform, adding an edit button, improving perks for paying users and removing bots. You tweet a lot. I I use my tweets to express myself. (laughs) Some people use their hair. (laughs) I use Twitter. Others liked Musk's promise to fight Twitter's perceived left-wing bias in the name of free speech. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, So it's just really important that people have both the, uh, the reality and the perception 
uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Here's podcaster Joe Rogan talking about Musk with a guest last year. That's not healthy. No. Well, that's what Elon wants to uh, bring back to Twitter is reasonable exchange of ideas. That's like he really thinks it's important. It is important. It is. I think it's important, too. But I'm, it's just rare that someone is that wealthy. That they can do that. That, that can do that. Even some of the people who worked at Twitter were happy about the idea of a new, hardcore business approach. One of them tweeted a picture of herself sleeping on the floor of the offices to meet deadlines. But others worried that their new boss, someone who talked publicly about the need to cut costs and promote free speech, was about to turn the company upside down. Remember that sink Musk was holding when he walked in? Employees had some jokes of their own about that. I fortunately was not there for the sink. <laughs> I think everybody thought it was rather ridiculous. The running joke became, oh, because he's going to sink the company. Dr. Ruman Chowdhury joined Twitter in 2021 as the head of machine learning, ethics, transparency and accountability. Her job was to make sure the algorithms that Twitter used didn't do bad things like spread disinformation or toxic content. We were trying to make a product that was beneficial for everybody in the world. And it sounds a little bit Pollyanna-ish or, or naive, but that that truly was it. We wanted to build a safe environment where people can express their thoughts and ideas and be free of harassment and harm, but also be free from uh, algorithmic harm. From the moment Chowdhury heard about Musk's plans to buy Twitter, she knew it was bad news, both for her job and for the company as a whole. Musk had already talked about slashing the workforce, and he wasn't happy about Twitter's supposedly woke culture either. You know, the hardest part wasn't hearing that it was going to be sold it was that we had no idea whether or not it was going to even occur, even down to the day it happened. There was so much, he wants this and he wants that and back and forth. It was really difficult to plan what to do. But I always plan for disaster scenarios. So I did take it seriously. So you were imagining Elon Musk's takeover as a disaster scenario? Absolutely. There was no doubt in my mind that if he indeed purchased the company, a team like mine was going to be laid off. He makes his political perspectives very, very clear. Um, he thinks teams like mine engage in woke politics, uh, would be his words. Um, he does not take this work seriously, and he thinks we have personal political agendas, which we do not. Um, but if he is running the company, then it does not matter what I think, because he's in charge of who's employed there and who isn't. When Musk finally did step through Twitter's doors, Chowdhury says that disaster scenario began to unfold. An atmosphere of paranoia began to descend as people tried to figure out who was going to get fired. There were people who had worked at Twitter 1.0 who were tasked with making lists of people. And these lists were the, you know, the, the keep or kill lists. And we didn't know who those people were, but there were lots of rumors of who they were. And of course, then you saw, you know, sometimes the worst of humanity come out, right? People trying to brown nose, people trying to take credit for other people's work, et cetera. People, you know, and there are many reasons people might do these things. So I don't want to be overly judgmental for why somebody would try to do whatever they could do to keep their job in a completely chaotic environment. Chowdhury says her own team had no idea if they were going to be sacked. They had no communication from Musk and his team. Then, she says, very quietly, a team of engineers from Elon Musk's other company, Tesla, came in and started asking probing questions. They went to some of the most junior members of my team and they asked them questions like, 
who on your team do you think pulls their weight and who do you think doesn't work hard enough? And as a leader of the team, you can probably hear in my voice, it infuriated me. How dare you? How dare you go to very young people and make them feel like they're responsible for everybody else's jobs? These people came crying later and said, I tried. I tried my best to save us. The team was not saved. Elon Musk took control of Twitter on Thursday, 27th of October. By Sunday, Chowdhury and her entire team were gone. After a few days of absolutely chaotic, almost Gestapo-like tactics, um, we were not even graced with an email. Our laptops were simply shut off. We received um, a boilerplate email a few days after we were no longer able to access our laptops. Over the next few months, Musk would cut more than half the entire workforce of Twitter. He said the cuts were necessary to turn Twitter, at last, into a profitable business. He tweeted, Unfortunately, there is no choice when the company is losing over $4 million a day. But it's not clear if all that cutting is going to be enough to rescue the company. When Elon Musk bought Twitter, he insisted heavy cuts were essential to Twitter's survival. But despite getting rid of more than half the workforce, the financial challenges kept piling up. Advertisers, the source of almost all of Twitter's revenue, pulled back when he took over. They were worried about changes he was making to content moderation. And then there's the fact that Musk borrowed heavily to buy Twitter, loading the company up with some $13 billion of new debt. He's also well aware that he overpaid for the company. $44 billion is a lot of money, especially because Elon Musk made his bid for Twitter just before shares across social media companies began to fall. It kind of makes you wonder why Musk wanted to buy Twitter in the first place. So I think one of the most fascinating parts of this story is trying to work out what exactly motivates Elon and what's behind his decision making. Hannah Murphy is a tech correspondent who covers social media companies for the FT from San Francisco. I've been working with her on this season of Tectonic. She's used to covering the ins and outs of social media businesses. But, she says, Musk's rationale for buying Twitter was never clear-cut. On the one hand, you have sort of Elon the entertainer, Elon the avid Twitter user who has millions of followers for whom he posts this constant stream of memes, of jokes, of, of jabs and jibes at rivals. And this particular Elon appears to some to have bought the platform on a whim, sort of frustrated by the amount of spam that he faces, frustrated by its moderation policies, as he's this sort of self-declared free speech absolutist. And this Elon doesn't really seem to have much of a plan with what to do with the platform. He just wants to buy his favourite toy. It's all some big joke. And then you also, on the other hand, have this other Elon that's the, the genius tech businessman. And you can argue that this Elon bought Twitter because he has a grand plan. He wants to turn around what was a fairly lacklustre business into this revenue-generating operation. Um, and this Elon has suggested he wants to build what he's called the everything app. So a sort of one-stop shop for social media content, payments, e-commerce, for example. It may well be that it's a combination of both Elons at, at play here when it comes to the decision to buy Twitter, but um, he's, he's keeping us guessing. Musk's grand plan for Twitter might be to turn it into an all-encompassing everything app. But right now, Hannah says the financial challenges means he just needs Twitter to start making money. 
as well as slashing his costs, he's tried new ways of raising revenue. Earlier this year, Twitter started charging people for their blue ticks, the marks that are supposed to verify a user is who they claim to be. But so far, not many people have actually agreed to pay. The reporting so far suggests that money from subscribers, which he suggested would be ways to raise monies and alternatives to advertising. So far, that doesn't look to have brought in a huge amount. There are various estimates, it's early days, but it doesn't seem anything on the kinds of sums that you can get from big ad deals. Does Musk have any other ideas on how to improve Twitter's financial situation? I think at this point, it looks like Elon's just trying to keep things afloat whilst sort of cutting off the fat so that he has the leanest possible operation just like his other businesses. I'd say he also appears to be trying to drive engagement to the platform by sort of himself posting quite controversial points and debates, therefore creating more conversations. And he's shared data suggesting that user numbers and engagement is, is on the rise. He's also sort of half attempted to engage advertisers with some brand safety features, so making it harder for ads to feature alongside toxic material, for example. And then more recently, we've seen him bring in a new chief executive, Linda Yaccarino. She's a well-known advertising executive with a very well-developed network and really much rests on whether she might be able to bring advertisers back into the fold and repair some of those relationships that Elon has, has disrupted. The forecast now is that Twitter revenue might be $3 billion this year. It has to make $1 billion of interest payments got other costs. Is Twitter really in danger of going bust? I think the risk was realer earlier this year before the cost cutting went quite so deep. And I know there was a sort of nervousness and hedge funds circling, etc. But yeah, I mean, he's isolated himself from Twitter's main source of revenues, the advertisers. His plans for Twitter Blue this premium subscription is not really paying off, only sort of raising paltry sums. And he's shrunk the workforce so much that it's hard to see how he can deliver on these, these grander promises. So yes, I think there is still a danger of Twitter going bust. But I think that Twitter, as long as it has its users, does manage to hang on in there. Mark Zuckerberg once famously described Twitter as a sort of clown car. Somehow this clown car just keeps on running through the sheer force of the users who still, despite the content moderation debates, despite sort of Elon putting out provocative material, still on the platform. And for that reason, I think there's less of a danger perhaps than some people say. Underestimate Musk at your peril. But one way to think about Twitter is to look at its valuation. Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion, including over $33 billion of equity. One investor now suggests that it's worth about a third of that. My own view, which I wrote about in the FT, is that Twitter's equity is now basically worthless. We contacted Twitter to ask if Musk would be interested in an interview, but the company's press team has gone silent since layoffs last year. We got back an automated email, the now infamous poop emoji that goes out to all journalists. It's unclear whether Elon Musk will succeed in turning Twitter around. His critics say he's failing right now, 
not because he's a bad businessman, but because he doesn't really understand social media. You know, when Elon Musk proposed taking over Twitter, I wasn't entirely negative about it because he's run a whole bunch of other businesses that have been pretty profitable. Rabble, who we heard from earlier in the episode, helped create Twitter in 2006. For him, a wealthy investor taking control was not necessarily a bad idea. He'd always been uncomfortable with the idea of leaving something as important as Twitter in the hands of financial markets. He wasn't wrong in saying that Twitter was too important to be left as a publicly traded company. What he was wrong is thinking that he had some idea on how you were supposed to run it, that somehow, because he was good at using Twitter, he was good at running Twitter. We, we think that building rockets is very hard and building social media is very easy. And we see building social media as easy because a lot of work is done into making it feel easy. And so that was the case with Twitter. If he had taken over and not fired everybody or been intelligent about who he was letting go, you know, didn't make these nonsensical decisions, didn't alienate the workforce, then maybe it could have been a success. What happened was he didn't listen to anyone and he came in like a bull in a china shop and Twitter's business model was super fragile. Ruman Chowdhury agrees with that assessment. He has a fundamental misunderstanding of why people go to social media. Um, verifications is a great example. Verifications are, were not a missed opportunity to get revenue. Verification happened because people needed reliable information from reputable sources, for example, the Financial Times or the government. Now, by making it a pay-to-play model, he has actually gutted the credibility of the platform. And again, people go to the platform for credible information. We don't just go there to look at memes. And the second is his fundamental misunderstanding of what trust and safety or responsible use functions were for. He seemed to think it was woke politics being enacted, but that's deeply untrue. We had standards and guidelines for what was allowed to be said by anybody. We did our best to enforce them. It is really difficult to do at scale, which he is now learning the hard way. Um, and by gutting these functionalities, you're not enabling, quote, free speech. You have just created a complete cesspool online. Do you see any dangers in what Twitter might become over the next few years? Oh, absolutely. I worry very much it's going to be a hotbed of mis and disinformation. I worry a lot what's going to happen in the 2024 U.S. election. I worry that with uh, not just his own political perspectives clouding his judgment on what he's doing, but also quite literally the lack of sufficient staff, they will not be able to stop malicious actors from outside. Twitter is not the biggest platform in the world. It has just a fraction of Facebook's users. But for the past 17 years, it's played an outsized role in online life. It's helped to shape the way we communicate. This was the platform credited with amplifying the voices of pro-democracy Arab Spring protests in 2011. If I can name it, I will name it a Twitter revolution. And I'm betting on this new trend of revolutions, uh, hashtag revolutions that are sweeping across the region and helping Black Lives Matter activists call for racial justice. In Baton Rouge, where Alton Sterling was shot by officers while pinned to the ground last Tuesday, protesters there were confronted by a militarized police force. On Twitter, video was posted that appeared to show an officer with her weapon raised in the direction of protesters. But it's also known for misinformation and for disinformation, for toxic content and bullying. It was dubbed a hellscape long before Musk took over. 
Some of its addicted users joke that Musk would be doing them a favor if he would just let the company go bust. But whatever your feelings about Twitter, it's hard to argue against its impact. Twitter's always been a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. Rabble says Twitter was never perfect, but its power was in creating a sense amongst users that they were part of something much bigger than themselves. And as somebody who was part of the original team, how does it feel watching what's happening to Twitter now? How does it feel for Twitter to fall apart like this? It feels like you're the parent of a kid who you've raised and has been successful and like is in college and is really successful and then becomes like a heroin addict and depressed and you keep like going to the hospital and putting them in treatment. That's what it feels like. It feels like this thing that you're so proud of and so invested in all of a sudden just becomes racked with dysfunction and falls apart. There was this sort of amazing, vibrant, powerful space, but it's just dying. What do you think will happen in 10 years time? Will, will Twitter still exist? What would social networks be like by then, do you think? Something called Twitter will exist in a decade, but there is something called MySpace online. And there's something called, you know, Friendster Online. And it bears no resemblance to what MySpace or Friendster existed in their heyday. But I actually think we may get to the point where the idea of a big unified public sphere with all people being able to participate in this debate, that itself becomes untenable. What's happening with Twitter is different communities on Twitter are slowly leaving and trying to find new places to be. And they're not gonna all end up in the same place. There's not gonna ever be a new Twitter. What we're gonna have is a sort of a diaspora and a fragmentation and people coming together in new configurations. For all the complaining, it's not clear how many people are really deleting their Twitter accounts. That's the thing about social media. We want to be where our friends are. Even Ruman Chowdhury, sacked by Musk less than a year ago, is hanging on. Do you still have a Twitter account? I do have a Twitter account. Uh, <laughs> it is, you know, I, I think we're all looking for a new home, but we haven't found one yet. I think what Elon has accidentally exposed is a fatigue with social media. I think a lot of our engagement on the social media platforms and our social media presences we had built for years was reflexive. And our desire to go recreate it elsewhere is not as strong as it was 10, 15 years ago when people opened their first accounts. I think social media, it gave us something very special and it gave us the ability to coordinate across time and space with and find people who think like us or talk like us, which I think is actually very beautiful. Elon Musk has discovered firsthand how difficult it is to run a social media company. Balancing the demands of users, advertisers, and regulators is no easy feat. Not every company is in the same financial straits. But Musk's takeover of Twitter has prompted speculation about the future of the platforms that dominate social networking and the way that we all interact online. In the next episode of this season of Tectonic, the story of another era-defining social platform. Facebook turned social networking into a trillion-dollar business. Facebook, because it had more users than anyone else, 
could provide an advertiser with the equivalent of the U.S. Super Bowl. 365 days a year. And that changed everything overnight. But now it's struggling to attract new users. And it's focusing on building the metaverse instead. So has Mark Zuckerberg given up on social media altogether? There's only so many billions of people on Earth. And without growth, he's in trouble. That's why he's so excited about the metaverse, is this opportunity for huge growth. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times with me, Elaine Moore. The producer is Josh Gabbett-Doyon and the senior producer is Edwin Lane. Manuela Saragossa is executive producer. Sound design is by Breen Turner and Samantha Diovinco. Original scoring by Metaphor Music. Special thanks to my colleague Hannah Murphy, who covers technology for the FT here in San Francisco. You can read her reporting on Twitter and the rest of the social media industry, ft.com. And before you go, we're keen to hear more from our listeners about this show, and we want to know what you'd like to hear more of. So we're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com forward slash tectonic survey. It takes around 10 minutes to complete, and we'd appreciate your feedback. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.